the Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Is it wrong that when I think about invasive species like pythons, iguanas, giant snails, I think of Jenny Stiletovich? Okay, look, it's not Jenny's fault. Not exactly. Uh, she covers South Florida's environment for WLRN, and she just happens to be one of the best reporters around on that beat. So anytime I read about Florida man crashing up against the environment, it's usually something written by Jenny. Iguanas freezing and falling out of trees? Jenny. Scientists using radio trackers to find invasive pythons in the Everglades? Jenny. Birdwatchers finding rare birds at the county dump? That was Jenny, too. And she's a Florida native. So Jenny also pays special attention to big corporations pushing the boundaries of the state's delicate ecosystem. Miami-Dade County recently voted to allow construction on almost 400 acres uh, in an environment, environmentally sensitive area near the water. And the Army Corps of Engineers announced that they're starting a new ambitious project in the Everglades. Jenny covered both those topics last year, and we know she'll be on top of them this year. So let's ask her about all the creepy critters and the urban creepers. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> so listen, when I think about you, I think of this one, this one story <clears throat> where um, it was this, this top chef had posted a photo with some, holding some fish. And you immediately saw that fish and you were like, that is a protective, protected species. And, uh, and he tried to come back and say something like, listen, honey, I want to say honey or deer was in the, was it, in I, the think, I believe it was. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, he doesn't know who he's messing with. <laughs> do you remember that? I do. I do. Because um, I, I can't remember. I, I'm pretty sure like my husband showed me that picture and said, is that a permit? And for people who are listening, permit are a big fish. They look a little bit like African pompano, which are, are, are in the, I don't know if they're in the same species. And then smaller pompano, which we can eat. Um, they're like the size of like a gong. It's like a yes. big silver gong is what that fish looks like. And they are a favorite sport fish. You catch them, you release them. They're, they're a flat fish. They're one of the most fun fishes to catch because they're really sneaky. It's hard to hook them. And then when you do, they are just powerhouses and they take off. And, uh, and yeah, so he, he was advertising that they were selling them on the menu. Um, and, and so I called him up and said, you, you know, you can't, you can't sell permit. <laughs> you can't do that, man. It's like one of the people in the, so you wrote a story about it. You were at the, with the Herald at the time mm -hmm. and you wrote a story about it. And it was like, it's like going to the, one guy said it was like going to the grocery store and finding a, a blue Marlin, like in the, in the freezer, you know? Yeah, you just don't, they're not on the menu. They are, um, you know, they're a regulated fish and they're not something that, and, and I'm not even sure they'd be that good to eat. I mean, I think the smaller pompano, which again, I think are in the same family, are, are a favorite on them. I mean, they're hard to come by, but they're really good eating fish, but but not not the big permit that you see out on the flats. Yeah, see that. At all. that so, I mean, <laughs> that's how I know, like, I always think of that story and that's how I know, like, you're, I, I, anything that, comes out of the tip of your pen, uh, comes out of your fingers onto the computer, I'm always interested in, and, and that I know that you're on top of, like, environmental stuff. Um, I, I, I know that iguanas get all the pub. They've been <laughs> getting all the pub these days because iguanas love to freeze and fall out of trees. But I want to put them on the back burner for a second. I want to talk you. about Thank you. I'm right? happy to put iguanas on the back burner. <laughs> Thank you. And actually, they'll probably like it on the back burner. It's nice and warm and toasty. <laughs> right. uh, but I want to talk about pythons a little bit because, like, that's the real problem. Iguanas are kind of, like, they're... They're an annoyance, yes. Well, and the difference is iguanas are in urban areas, which are already kind of destroyed by us, you know, and pythons are out in the wild and in the areas that we're trying to protect and, and restore. Right. It's all these sensitive areas that are like at the crux of Florida's environment. 
Right, right. And they're out eating, you know, the, the mammals and the wading birds and the things that are part of the ecosystem that make, you know, the Everglades cool. Yeah, all the good stuff. They're eating all the good stuff. <laughs> like, well, like uh, a lionfish, they're eating all the good stuff. You know? Right, right. And, that, and that's another topic we haven't touched on in a while. But so you had this story recently that I thought uh, was really great where scientists were using the female python pheromones to lure the males in the traps. And I was like, oh, this sounds like a South Beach scam. <laughs> like where the, where the male's Rolex is stolen. Uh, right, the, right. The pheromones are the python's Rolex. <laughs> they're like, oh, where are these? Oh, all my Rolex. So, so tell me about that a little bit. What, like that seems like a pretty, a new, because that's the whole thing is it's a battle to try to control this kind right. of out-of-control species. Right, because they're really hard to find. Scientists call them cryptic. They are just, uh, you let them go in the grass and in the wild, and within you know two seconds, two feet away, you can't find them anymore. So they're really hard to see. The Also, where they live is really hard to hunt. I mean, in sawgrass marshes, um, you can't just walk into the sawgrass and hunt for, for pythons. It's really harsh habitat, um, harsh areas. And so, and and there are so many of them. I mean, we don't really have a good handle on how many they are. We just can tell by what's missing <laughs> that right. maybe pythons are there. And so they need to find a better way to contain them. Um, and using these trackers, they can catch a few, like really randy males, <laughs> and <laughs> and attach trackers to them or females. And, and, and that's a way to um, get a whole bunch at once. If you can track males to a female, an egg-bearing female, I think in that that one instance, the story I wrote about, they found um, over a hundred unfertilized eggs in that female. Oh my if, god! You know that that could potentially be a hundred more, you know, pythons on in in the wild. Um, and so what they do is one female. I'm going to get. I'm sorry <laughs> to the gory details, but one female can attract multiple males, and they end up in these things called mating balls. <laughs> Listen, I came across that term, and I was like. Now it really sounds like a South Beach thing. Also, <laughs> I will never sleep again. Cause so, so describe that. They all kind of... They ball up. I mean, it's the female and the males wrap around them. This is Frank Ridgely at Zoo Miami in that story. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it. Describes the mating balls and just hearing him describe... <laughs> It was so funny because even you, you could hear his voice shudder at the thought of it. I, um, feel, I feel like we're 10 seconds away from, from Alec Baldwin in that SNL <laughs> NPR skit, you know, where he's going to say something offensive. But listen, Sorry. No, we got, <laughs> Stop. We got we to put like, a, we gotta put like a, a, a disclaimer warning on the show. No, but I think like that's because they've really they've learned so much about all these habits. And I'm thinking of like these... These Mike Myers, you know, as Austin Powers males, like, is there a female around here? <laughs> yeah, baby. But, so, it, but on the serious side of it, that kind of scientific research, like it's great that Florida has hunts, but that's really just to draw attention to the problem where they're really going to make a difference in containing the snakes is in the scientific research they do. And right. there has been a lot of good effort um, between tracking, figuring out their habits. Um, those trackers have made a huge difference. We know now that they can swim. They didn't do. They don't do that in their native habitat, oh but boy. in Florida, they like swim out to mangrove islands, which is a problem because those are nesting islands for wading birds. And you know, we're already seeing some birds like roseate spoonbills leave South Florida because of sea rise. Mm. The last thing we want is like pythons eating their, you know, the babies and the eggs too. So right. 
Is is there a way to get a handle for how that fight against the Pythons is going? Like, are we still very much losing this thing, or are you know? I know we're learning about our enemy, so to speak, but are we? Yeah, where does that I mean, stand? I I think so. Where they're using those um, that tracking, the pheromone tracking, mm-hmm. um, over in Southwest Florida, they have a very contained area, and they are they are successful in about 100 square acres. I think it's 100 square acres um, that the the Conservancy of Southwest Florida is running that program. And when I did that story, the lead biologist, um, Ian Bartasek, said, you know, now we have to figure out how to scale it up. Can we do that? We don't know yet. Right. So I would say we're not ahead of the game at all. Uh, you you uh, recently obviously did some reporting on this, and we have uh, some audio. We want to play that a little bit. So um, can we can we roll a little bit of that? Sir, are you comfortable intubating Rosemary? Once Ridgely and vet tech Rosemary Lucas get the snake knocked out, they attach an ultrasound to monitor its heart, the same kind doctors use on pregnant women. Ridgely works quickly, slicing between the python scales to open up its body cavity. You gotta have a nice sharp scalpel to get in between there. I like the Doppler noise. It's like my comfort noise during surgery, right? That does not necessarily mean the snake is alive still, though. I had University of Florida bring me a python once that had been frozen for two weeks. And when we thought it out to do the necropsy, the heart started beating again. Before he inserts the transmitter, Ridgely asked McAllister to do a quick test to make sure it works. You already got the frequency? This is step one. And it turns out, at least for the humans involved, it's the easy part of the project. So you were actually in the room during this python surgery where they're implanting the transmitter to track those snakes. And right. what, what was that like? Well, I'm a little squeamish, oh. like a lot squeamish. <laughs> <laughs> so I just see like brown iodine and I'm like, whoa, what kind of fluid is that? <laughs> I need to sit down. <laughs> so, but then I quickly got kind of caught up in what they were doing and I was I, I can't remember when I did that story, but I feel like I was pretty new to radio. Mm. So I was just getting a handle on like the beauty of sound. And as soon as they like turned on the heart monitor and you could hear that swishing sound, I was like, oh, this is cool. Right. Um, so it, it yeah. And I I'm a science geek. So I see things like that happen. And I'm like. Man, what they can do. And, and I will tell you, when I, in the story where I said that was the easy part, it really was the easy part because the next part of the story where we went out and we tracked a different python mm. but with the same kind of tracker through the Big Cypress Swamp was one of the hardest days I've ever had. <laughs> like physically taxing, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. So describe yes. that for me. You got the hip waders on. Give me that. No hip is, waders. No. no. Just tracking through the <laughs> – what is that like then? Describe it. It is. So, so – we took a the day we went out there the weather was a little iffy and you're in these big metal swamp buggies they're on big rubber tires that are about like i don't know four feet high and then just like a cheap body set on top of these so it's a little rainy and stuff and we were like okay well i guess it'll be okay so we drive out um into the big cypress to as far as we can go in the swamp buggy and then we get out and we start waiting um and this area is where it's not swamp, it's overgrown with head-high ferns. So you literally cannot, the person in front of you will disappear like two feet away from you. You're wow. like, wait, are you Just still there? <laughs> poof behind a fern. It's, I mean, you're, and the, the lead person is kind of has a machete and is ma- whacking their way through through the tree ferns. But it's, it's harsh 
it's hard <laughs> for a city girl <laughs> like me. Um, but then you get into the water, um, and it's beautiful. It is, if you have never gone into, like, the remote parts of Big Cypress um, and into the swamp parts, the, the cypress trees are towering. It's like a cathedral. I'm sorry, I'm waving my hands around. But you can, That's the good. sounds you hear, the way the sound echoes off the water, it is silent until you hear birds like we heard a green egret that has this really kind of guttural call and it just echoed through the swamp i mean it was amazing so then you're thinking oh god this is wonderful this is beautiful and we see some um an alligator nest and <laughs> and and there's no alligators L- lulled in yes yeah, so so one of the the we were, I was with a park ranger and two scientists with U, the U.S. Geological Survey, and they're like, "Oh, it's okay. There's there's no gators around. It's probably like an old empty nest." And so the lead scientists, like we were kind of spread out, and me and the park ranger were still in the water, and we hear um, the 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 lead scientist say, "Uh oh, we're wrong." There's some baby gators over here. And he is like, let's go. <laughs> that is not what you want to hear in the swamp near a nest of alligators is, uh-oh. And as we get around, we can see the broken eggs, like the broken gator eggs. So that, I, I and, and I'm like naively trustworthy sometimes. And I'm like, he won't let anything happen to me. <laughs> this is not a ride at Disney, Jenny. That gator keeps coming. It's not on a track. <laughs> there's also in the park still or in the National Preserve, there's these things, there are old hunt camps and they're called in holdings and they're, you know, people who have had them for years and they're hunters and they don't necessarily like strangers coming around. Oh, so it's like little, like almost like um, uh, Stiltville, but out in the Everglades, like these, these areas of yeah. seclusion. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and we had to like climb over fences at certain points. It was like easier to just like cut through somebody's property than to go around. And even they like were like. a bad like, move in Florida. That does not seem like a great move. Keep out signs <laughs> everywhere. I remember one had a picture of like AK-47s. Oh, that's and, and somebody even had like a toy gun. I mean, yeah, it's, it was, yeah. <laughs> How did you, uh, like you said, you describe yourself as a city girl. How did you go, t- tell me a little bit about your growing up. Like where did you grow up and what does city girl mean? Well, so I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. So that's pretty citified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was actually born in Ocala if in the you country. Say so. um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, so I started out like in the country. And then when, when I started school, like in, in kindergarten, we moved down to, to Fort Lauderdale. But uh-huh. I was, I grew up, you know, riding my bicycle to the beach. I don't think we went down to the Keys, but I never went out to the to the Everglades. Interesting. You know, I just didn't know what it really like. A lot of people who live on the coast, we forget that there's this huge interior, beautiful space that is com- that is a hundred percent different from what you see when you look east. Right. Um, tell me about what your brush was like again with nature growing up. Then, like, what what was your ex- how did you experience you know nature growing up? Well, so when I was growing up a long time ago, <laughs> the Florida, there was a lot fewer people. You know, you could yeah. ride, I could ride my bike. I grew up in Wilton Manors on a little dirty little canal. We'd get manatees up in the canal, which was great. But you could ride your bike over to the beach and be the only one on the beach. Um, and I would go, the Birch States Park was across the street from the beach that I went to. And it was this quiet little preserve and you could run around in there. And, you know, as like my brother and I would, there was a little train that ran through there, but my mom would, you know, be, she'd let us go. We would just run around there. And it was, um, it was urban nature, 
but it was nature, you know, it was still there and you could still, at the time I didn't know they were called hardwood hammocks, but you know, they were, they were still empty space in Eastern Florida, South Florida. Um, and it was, it was amazing. We would, uh, the canals in our neighborhood, it was before people really had fences. So we'd get like these neighborhood tag games and we would run up and down the seawalls playing tag and hide and seek. And, you know, it's just being outside. It was, <laughs> we didn't have central air growing up. <laughs> so we did spend a lot of time outside because it was sometimes cooler outside than inside. Same. I remember central air being installed in my Miramar home when I was a little kid. Right. It I was remember like, that was what that was like. A big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. Listen, we're going to have to take a little break, uh, but then I want to come back and talk more about critters, but more about your background, too, and growing up in the environment and what led you to uh, to want to write about it and, uh, and report about it. Uh, we're speaking with Jenny Stiletovich, who is WLRN's environmental reporter, and this is Sundial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias, and we've been talking to WLRN's environmental reporter, Jenny Stiletovich. Uh, we've been hearing about not just her looking back on 2022 and some of her creepy critter stories, but also about how <laughs> she got into environmental reporting, which, which I think is interesting because I think that as reporters, we, you kind of end up writing about this thing that you become passionate about. And before the break, you were talking a little bit about um, growing up in these less developed areas of like Fort Lauderdale, you know, before, you know, ev before the the boom and the explosion. And so how did that transfer into, into uh, the kind of environmentalism and, and the idea of, of the environment as more than just this esoteric thing that you wanted to, to know more about, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like a lot of people who grow up outside, you know, you, you just feel this connection. It's just kind of like in your DNA at a certain point. It's like, People make fun of people from Florida. They say when you move up north, you know, your blood is thin. You get, you're colder than everybody else. I think that happens, too, with just your your connection to, to, to the outside. And, I mean, I will say that when, um, you know, I grew up in South Florida. I was like a Florida girl, South Florida girl. I married into a family of anglers, and I would be remiss if I did not give credit to how big an influence that was because my husband was the first to really get me out on the water. I mean, we had a little rowboat <laughs> behind our house that we'd row around the canal, but but it was he was the one who first like took me out fishing, took me into Biscayne Bay and showed me this world that uh, frankly I did not know was really out there and it was, you know, it was it was life altering. Right. Uh, and uh, your husband, tell me about him a little bit. Tell me about your this family of anglers, because I, I know, well, you folks, know Scott. Folks, <laughs> folks listening will recognize the last name, definitely. Right. So so my husband, Scott Hyacin, was a reporter at the Miami Herald. We actually met at the Palm Beach Post, where I know you were a reporter. I think I was there I before was. you. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, and his, his father, his grandfather's great-grandfather, um, they go back I, sometimes I try and figure out what generation our kids are, and I can't, and I lose track. But, <laughs> but they have been lifelong anglers in South Florida. I mean, his dad. When you talk about like environmental writers, um, Carl Hyacin, Carl is like one of the best environmental writers ever. I mean, it's easy to read his books and get caught up in the humor and 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 the the other brilliance in them. But but for me, some of his environmental stuff is just. 
It's amazing. It's amazing. And I want to say that he was maybe the guy that popularized the saying of Florida being a sunny place for shady people. Right. <laughs> right. And so like, so he was always, from his writing, you could tell that he was offended by people who didn't take Florida, the, the uniqueness and the, the beauty of Florida's environment into take it for granted. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've thought about this a lot lately, like to be a true Floridian, you have to hate Florida and love Florida. Oh my God. Yes. And yes. simultaneously, huh? like if you only say, I love Florida, then you're not really getting it. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is a little bit off topic, but Billy Corbin is a guy that does that. You know, people say, why are you so negative about Florida? But I think you're right that you have to, you have, if you love a place, you have to appreciate it for its warts as well, right? Yeah. 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 And you have to be deeply upset about yeah. the, and offended when, when things get destroyed that make it so special and so unique. Um, and so being is, in that kind of household, you know, our, our poor kids, boy. <laughs> tell me about that. What do, you, what do you mean? Like, is there something that's standing in your mind that like something that was deeply offensive that you were like, I can't believe that this is happening? You know, is there something now that's happening that's that's like. Well, for me, a big part of environmental reporting is connecting the dots mm -hmm. and seeing how it's all related. And it's always, always related in Florida to the environment. If you're worried about your um, windstorm insurance going up 50% this year, you know, look at the environment and you have to you have to consider that when you consider the things that matter to you and the things that you want to like take part in. I mean, it is, uh, you know, we're building on the coast. Hurricanes are getting worse. Storm surge is getting worse. Um, it's driving up insurance rates. They're all <laughs> connected. Yeah. It, it's like how it affects the pocketbook is mostly how people respond. So I'm thinking of Florida's West Coast, which was devastated by this hurricane. I think the death toll is over 100, uh, Hurricane Ian. And it, and it destroyed these areas that were homes that were built in these low-lying lands, like pre- uh, Andrew uh, construction or what post have you. Post-Andrew. I mean, oh, we... we Andrew. okay. It's not like people don't know this can, can happen. I mean, we did a story on the threats from storm surge just a few months before Ian saying, this is, listen, storm surge is getting worse. We're not... We used to be... We used to worry about wind all the time. And Andrew, post-Andrew, we saw what happened inland and country walk and we were like, whoa, you know, our buildings were, we need to build them better to withstand wind. Now we know that storm surge is the, and flooding has always been the leading killer, not right. necessarily the, the property damage we saw Andrew was, was wind driven. Um, but when you think about life safety, flooding has always been bad. The fact that these storms, they get more intense, which raise, you know, makes storm surge worse. They're also getting bigger and broader. Um, and so when we build along the coast and, and don't take that into consideration and, and how hard it is to build to withstand storm surge, when I did that story, I went to UM has, um, a, University of Miami has this storm surge tank where they're doing a lot of research on what happens to structures when hmm. a 10-foot wave, a 16-foot wave, whatever comes barreling through driven by a hurricane. And Brian House is the researcher that, that runs that tank. I interviewed him for, for that story and I asked him about Irma um, and when it was headed towards Southeast Florida. He lives down in Pinecrest. Oh, wow. He was like, I saw the forecast when it was headed this way. He had he, he he sat on the turnpike for fifteen hours with his family. I mean, he was like, there was no way I was staying. And wow. if the guy who studies storm surge would rather sit on the highway for fifteen hours than <laughs> in his house, you know, then you, you need to 
to listen to that. Right. And these are all lessons that we can learn about the environment, like really pay attention to like, what is the environment telling us that we need to be doing? Where should we be living? How should our houses be built if we want to prevent loss of life? I think right. is, is what you're saying. Right. Well, you wrote a story recently that I think has been um, something that we've talked about a lot in the last month, which is the Miami-Dade Commission recently allowed for construction on almost 400 acres in very sensitive, low-lying areas that are right now are mangroves. Basically, it's a it's basically a, it's it's agricultural area. There's it's no agriculture. It's an ag land. It's a tree farm that's next to a mangrove preserve. And what they did is um, and stop me if I'm getting too in the weeds. But we have something called the urban development boundary that was set up in the early '80s to basically draw the line between land we want to protect, which is wetlands and farms and where we want to build. And that has always been now the struggle between developers who are thinking about money and where we can build and people who then will live in those houses and decide what is our life like near this ever near this glade near this mangrove 50 feet from the ocean or what have you, you know. Right. right. Um, so so that issue was and I think they wanted a lot more, right? Like they wanted something yeah. like eight to build on like 800 acres. Right. It was originally twice as much. It's going to be. Um, so th- what they did is they, they moved the boundary to allow this warehouse development, a logistics center. There was rumors in the beginning that it was going to be an Amazon fulfillment center. Right, in one right. of the meetings, the developer said, you know, they're not one of our, our clients. Um uh, but it's always going to be housing, isn't it? It's always going to be. Well, no, this will be a warehouse. Oh, I mean, okay. because part of the problem is you. I'm not sure that insurers would say this is this is designated a coastal high hazard zone. I mean, it literally when a when a hurricane comes in, if it comes in at that angle, you know, this is this is definitely will flood. This is why it's designated coastal high hazard zone. Um, insurers look at that and are like, whoa. <laughs> you know? So so at first the city commission approves it. The mayor vetoes it. And then it goes, then they override her veto with right. the vote. So, the, so where does it stand now? I guess is the big so, question. So, so it's, it's, it, has, it was approved because the county commission overturned the mayor's veto. Um, a group, uh, one of the residents down there and some environmental groups that had long opposed it have, have sued. So basically it will go before an administrative law judge in Tallahassee when it comes to challenges to land use. Mm. They don't go through the regular court system. They go through an administrative law judge who's a judge, but um, then that judge's decision is ultimately decided by the governor and the cabinet. This will, for people familiar with the, <laughs> the, the the fighting in South Dade, they might remember the 836, the Kendall Parkway, the extension of the 836 over the Bird Drive Basin, which is a old headwaters for Shark River Slough. Um, when when the county wanted to extend that highway, a lot of people opposed it. Um, it passed. It was challenged by environmentalists who followed the same process, went before an administrative law judge who ruled against the county and said, no, you have not justified the, the need for this highway. Um, ultimately, Governor DeSantis said this is a local issue, um, overturned the administrative law judge, and, and he doesn't apparently in some issues like to wade in and interfere with local decisions oh, not always but so so we'll so this is kind of a wait and see we'll we'll see where so yeah up. we'll see what what happens as it winds through this administrative uh law proceeding right so that that all depends on 
um, uh, yeah, those decisions are yet to be made. But there, I, I, I would like to just say one more thing about yeah. that. It is not just that it's in a vulnerable area. This area is... The planning is underway right now for a critical Everglades restoration plan that connects the Everglades to Biscayne Bay. As we've seen okay. over the last couple of years, Biscayne Bay is increasingly in trouble. The fish kills that have happened in the last couple of years are a new thing. Biscayne Bay typically doesn't have fish kills. Before that, we were seeing seagrass die-offs. Um, we were seeing, you know, bonefish, one of the main in the in the in the triangle of sport fishing tarpon permit and bonefish you know we're we're disappearing from the bay um and so so this project is supposed to reconnect the flow of fresh water and sorry i feel like now i'm getting in the weeds but to biscayne bay biscayne bay needs fresh water um the fresh water it's getting now is coming through dirty canals except down south this is our chance to really uh, do an Everglades restoration project that could make a major difference in our lives down here in South Florida. This is the next major, the next major project by the Army of Corps of Engineers. Right, 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 and and it could ultimately. I've heard it described by the Everglades Foundation as saying like this could be the biggest project yet. I mean, we've heard a lot about the stuff going on around Lake O and the estuaries, the St. Lucie Estuary and the Caloosahatchee off the west coast and the reservoirs there. There's a giant reservoir that was this subject of a huge fight like back in 2017 2018 that we heard a lot about that's going to cost billions of dollars if if they're saying this project could be even bigger than that that's something well this is like a, you know the army corps of engineers you you got a lot of explaining to do right like because a lot of those decisions planting melaleuca trees and all these things when they were first drained the everglades were army corps of engineer right so when i hear those those things related to a new project, I'm, I listened to with a different ear. Is that, how, how do you approach that with your reporting? When? Well, so I, I guess I kind of see like the old core and the new core. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. sort of the, 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 the old core whose mission was purely flood control driven by agricultural interests, you know, in the 40s when Florida is a breadbasket for the north. I mean, huge agricultural state. They just dredged all over the place to, to provide flood control for ag and for us. Right. I mean, we're here because of the flood control they put in. Right. Um, Double-edged sword, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, the, the Everglades restoration movement, and it wasn't just the Everglades, the 70s environmental awakening um, made everybody aware of the problems we created when we put our prints all over the landscape when we started changing it and and so with Everglades restoration that was you know that effort was decades before the 2000 official plan came into being it was there there was efforts to clean up and fix the Everglades Um, and so the sort of modern core tries to balance flood control and environmental restoration I mean that's what Everglades restoration is all about. It's the environmental component of the flood control that we demand and require without killing our environment. And it's a tricky balance that in the past, you know, it it is hard to make it work. Right. It, how do we how do we make this a place that people still want to live so for the envi- and and the environment is healthy and to support the people rather than than using up the resource rather than than in a really skinny state yeah you know we don't have a lot of land as we know with housing prices rising i mean we we i don't know sometimes i think like there's a carrying capacity when are we going to recognize that 
uh, Jenny, we need to take a quick little, a very quick little break, uh, but we'll be back with uh, Jenny Stiletovich, WLRN's environmental reporter. Stick around. This is Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias, and we're here with Jenny Stiletovich, who is WLRN's environmental reporter. And, you know, she gets into stuff like we were talking in, in the last section about, you know, when when man meets up against uh, the environment. And I think that nothing sums that up as much as where you can birdwatch in South Florida. Like, it was a real surprise to me that there is this uh, hidden place where people see a great diversity of birds, and it's not where you would you would expect. Where is that? So it is a dump, the South Dade landfill um, by Black Point Marina, uh, just west of Black Point Marina. There's a big old landfill that rises up. It's one of our Mount Trashmores. <laughs> right. It's one of our Mount Trashmores. I remember when the Mount Trashmore was the one in Broward, which, by the way, is an aside. I remember driving by once and there was like a sign like like in Hollywood, you know, like the big Hollywood sign, it was on that Mount Trashmore. Oh, that said Mount Trashmore? Yeah, and it, and it, and it kind of blew my mind. I was like, well, I guess this is what we're all about. So Our version so, of landmarks. <laughs> so tell me about that. Tell me about going out to the to the trash dump to look for birds, to bird. I So I wanted to do something on the Christmas, on Audubon's Christmas bird count, because I think it's kind of a cool thing. It is the longest running wildlife survey in existence, and, and it's citizen science. I mean, it's 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 a it's a cool thing. And so I, I can't remember who I contacted at first, but they said, there's this really great birder, this kid, Alex Harper, you got to go out with him. And so I, I got in touch with him, and he's like, I have the perfect place. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I did not expect to be going out to the garbage dump. When he said the dump I was like you are right that is gonna be <laughs> awesome and we so I met him um sort of before dawn or it was just starting to get light and and you can't you know so the sun's coming up and there's there's this mountain mountainous landfill um and and as the sun comes up you know you see the turkey vultures start coming around and there's more and more vultures and 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 that was kind of disappointed by. I was like, I see these things. Yeah, Yeah. I could see those like going in downtown Miami. (laughs) Right, right. So when did it get interesting? So then, so he did not even, he like, you know, didn't give the the, the landfill a second look. I mean, he started, there's a little marsh. So so as he pointed out, nobody wants to live near a dump. So there's lots of empty land. And um, and that's a coastal very, the, the, the area between the coast and the landfill is only like a couple miles, which it's unfortunate to have a landfill that close to Biscayne Bay. Because that's near a Black Point Marina, as it is. folks might know. It okay. is. And so what you get is this very, in close proximity, um, you have wetlands and marshes, um, and you get marine birds and, and songbirds. You know, mm. So you have a, a huge mix of, and where there are smaller birds, there's bigger birds like hawks, there's birds of prey. Um, oh, wow. And, and so... So they have, I'll just start at the beginning because I love this phrase, dawn chorus. When the sun comes up, um, they, the birders call it the dawn chorus. And it's when the birds, the insects start to come out as the day warms up or as the sun comes up. And then the birds come out and they start singing like crazy. And I always, you know, I was one of those people, bird sounds are just like white noise in a way. Like we don't always listen to them. But when you're with a birder 
and they start calling him out and he would start doing the sounds and the different sounds suddenly it's like seeing in color for the first time oh wow yeah i i've come to know a couple like i know what a cardinal sounds like in my yard and certain what the mockingbird sounds like are are there can i get you to do any bird sounds like (laughs) i can't get you to do a ron mcgill bird sound thing i i'm not good enough at it i i wish that that alex was sitting here because he he it was you know he would just he knew all of them and i said to him how do you how do you learn bird sounds like how do you and he was like well you bird enough you're out you get that the hang of it but then he also listened to tapes oh man that is down the nerd hole there it, it is so nerdy <laughs> so so the, these birders i mean and thank goodness i feel like birders anglers they're all in the same tribe in a way because they fixate on stuff and they keep counts and numbers and they know where they caught things or where they saw things and the exact species the size all, and they record all that and it's so it is this amazing database for scientists too i mean fish and bird are a measure of planet health i think in a way because people have obsessed over them for so long you know we have a record we have a record of people's habits and and we should say that folks can check out that story at wlrn.org or on our social media we've shared it uh so people people can check out that birding at the city dump which i think is is crazy um but also interesting because like you said it's uh there, I want to say that there's there's a measure over Christmas time where people count birds. Right. So uh, it's December and January. Um, it's it's mostly North America, Central and South America, Hawaiian Islands. Um, I think there may be some in New Zealand, um, but there it's spans the, the the globe, not all parts. But yeah, and they and anybody can do it. Right. You were talking earlier about how your family got you into it um and and now i'm curious about how your children have gotten into it have your have your children uh learned that from you from your from your family to to be sensitive of the environment tell me about what their paths I have taken so i'm glad that, i mean i they hear about it non-stop and also, <laughs> <laughs> they well, can't your escape it your daughter's uh studying marine biology at, she is right tell me so and you recently uh posted that she was like in Panama studying corals. I can't help but draw a parallel or two here. Uh, it's all her. I mean, I, I, she has loved fishing since she was a little kid. She's one of these people that I admire so much who, as, as soon as she could learn to read, she knew what she wanted to do. Um, and we would go down to the Keys and she would just wander out in the mucky, you know, the bay is full of seagrass and it's not always pretty to swim in at all. It's muddy and buggy and your feet sink in the muck. And it's, she loved that. She loved that nothing. We would come home with shoeboxes full of hermit crabs that she had collected. And, um, and so she's always just, just felt, I don't know, I don't know what moved her, but, but, but it did. And she always knew that that's what she wanted to do. Um, when in high school, she went to d- to Dash, the design and architecture senior high school, because mm-hmm. she she's also a, a pretty good artist. And when she got in, I was like, oh, that's honey. This is like one of the best high schools in, in Miami-Dade County. And she said, but does that mean I won't be able to be a marine biologist? Oh, my gosh. I was like, you're 14. You could be anything. You could be everything, actually. <laughs> you could mix those two things. That would be amazing. Yeah. And yeah. and your son, you recently tweeted about your son uh, being on an archaeological dig, maybe in, in Israel? or t- Yeah. Tell me yeah, about that. Yeah. So, he, so, so both of them, like we were spread all over the planet, I f- felt like this summer. She was in <laughs> Panama. There's a Smithsonian has a research. Institute down there so she was on Boca's uh, I'm gonna forget the name but she was there he he has 
college for him has been an excuse to travel. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> that sounds like a great college experience. So he spent one semester in London. He spent a summer in Italy. And so this past summer, we were like, Jack, where are you going to go? And he found this archaeological dig. And he loves, he, like, I think kids his age grew up on Indiana Jones and, you know, that's his vision of archaeology. Uh, I think the reality is a little different. So yeah, he, it's a little quieter. Yeah, it's a little harder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I was an anthropology major at, at UF, and okay. actually, I, I that's that was my what my degree was in. So we did a little bit of archaeology, and it is painstaking, and it is hard, and it is dirty work, and it is it's mostly math. It's yeah. math and, and making grids on the on the ground. Which I think he learned because he's an anthropology major. He's like, where's <laughs> where's my whip and my and my hat, right? My fedora. <laughs> and nobody told me I was going to have to get up at 4 a.m. every morning to make it to the dig by daylight. <laughs> so he was, I think, a little surprised once he once he got there. Um, but but it was a great experience, and you know, yeah, he he loved it. Uh, what so what are your conversations like with them, especially when you see that? those issues like, like kind of step out of yourself for a second and see like do you guys have conversations about the environment is that something that you feel like you continue to have we do we do i mean claire's research in coral she spent the summer sampling sea urchins i love writing about sea urchins i like eating sea urchins but oh, but really? okay go ahead i've never that's <laughs> uni like oh, those, the yellow. Yeah, the yellow. They, what does it taste like? Uh, it tastes a little bit. It tastes like the sea, which is what you always say, right? So it's a little bit like oysters. So it has like, there's a little bit of iodine in it. So you have a little bit of that, that flavoring, but it's very silky. It's it's really delicious, actually. Wow. Yeah. Okay. They're okay. like these. Uh, my my uh, our our former colleague Amy Reyes says that it tastes like bad breath, <laughs> but she has terrible taste. So Amy, sorry. <laughs> But uni is delicious, and you should have some. Okay. There is a restaurant in Gainesville. I know your daughter is there now She is there. Well. She's actually looking at us from the other room. Uh, <laughs> my three daughters are here in studio today, and my, my Gainesville daughter is there. Yeah, and she's, uh, she, she is, she's always big, been big into food and, and seafood specifically, so yeah. But so there is a restaurant there where I know Claire has got, and I forgot that it was called uni because I just see this blob of yellow stuff, and I'd be like, what is that? That looks a little too in between food and liquid. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's like yogurt. <laughs> um, you know, uh, talking a little bit about more of the, the uh, you know, you're so involved in, in like writing about the environment in different ways. And it's a yes when it's about development. Yes, it's about, you've written about conservation, but there's also conservation of the conservationists. And I'm thinking specifically of the story of uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas has a home uh, she is deceased, obviously, but she had a home that's in uh, a previously empty area in, in Coconut Grove. Uh, and there's been a big fight for now decades, right, about what to do with her house as, as like this historic place that's dilapidated. So first, tell us a little bit about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, uh, who she was and, and like why her house would be important. Well, so she lived to about 108, so I can see why you might <laughs> think she might still be alive. She's 300 years old. But, <laughs> but she was, um, you know, uh, her father owned the Miami Herald. She's an early reporter, writer. She she was lived, one of the first to write about, like, to be an, a quote-unquote environmental writer. She wrote The River of Grass, which I, I would hope everyone had heard of. If you live in South Florida and you haven't heard of River of Grass, like, go to the library. Yes, you <laughs> should have it. a copy. I, we have a copy at home of River of Grass. Right, right. And so she, she sort of made, connected the River Grass to us um, and made it understandable for people and also 
depicted it in a very poetic way um, and and elegized it. I mean, I think that your writer, you know, I'm a, we believe that's what writing is at its best is just like adds meaning to a blade of grass, right? right. Um, and so connecting all those dots, connecting how we live and how the Everglades um, helps us live um, was, a, was a huge thing. Um, it just, I think, was the 75th anniversary of the publication of that book. Um, it came the same day they created Everglades National Park, I believe was the day that they published River of Grass. That's great. That's great marketing. Great time. Great marketing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I know. So, so, so she, and she also did a lot of, um, work on voters' rights and women's rights. People think of her as just an environmentalist, but she did like a lot of other amazing things. She was just this tiny little powerhouse of opinion. Very um, much a humanist. And she lived in this little home that was like, I want to say it's something like under a thousand square feet. It's t- yeah, yeah. Uh, near, near basically... Uh, uh, near Biscayne Bay, like you right. could probably you could probably throw a stone. Uh, you probably this. could see the bay when she before <laughs> before right, before they developed all around. Right, it. right. It's right off Douglas Road. It's um, I mean, I've described it as like it looks like a little Hobbit house. It was designed in the sort of English Tudor little thatched roof. It wasn't. It's not thatched now. I don't think it was originally, but it's got that that kind of wraparound roof. Mm-hmm. Um, little one room bedroom kitchen with a uh, patio around it, it looks almost exactly the same today as when she lived there. And, um, and all around it, there's been development, and this little house is, has been moved from one group to another that's been managing it, and it's ultimately just fallen into disrepair. And different groups really want to keep it as a museum, but that's kind of been stalled, right? It's, and the house it's, just keeps deteriorating. It's stalled. So there's been development. So the, the state, what was stuck was the state to open it up to the public, and that was the debate. Bait, like how much should it be opened up to the public? This is a very residential neighborhood. It's a very um, rich neighborhood. Yeah. Um, people, you know, don't want school buses and traffic coming through, and it's in the Grove, so the roads are pretty small and, and right. narrow. Um, and so, so the the state needed to do work on it, not just to keep it from disrepair, which it was in desperate need of, but also find a way to make it accessible to the public. And so, the state wanted to put in pavers and parking. Um, they're another a nonprofit group um, that Sally Jude, who just passed away and was one of the leading um, historians, helped historic preservation statewide, did a lot of different things, um, had a group that was had had bought the property next to Marjorie's that Marjorie had given her best friend um, to oh, build a house. Oh, she gave her friend and, a property right yeah. next to her that she owned so that she could build her house. So, so when she passed away, um, Marjorie left her house to the state, but then the, the friend's property, the the I forget if it's called the South Florida Land Trust, and they're going to kill me for not remembering the exact name it's of the group. It's close to that, right? Yeah, so they, they, they took over, and so they were working to try and get it restored and, and make it accessible, but there was disagreement over how it should be done, and that kind of like led to the standoff, and the neighbors were worried about having all this traffic come in, so they think they've reached a kind of yeah, and, balance. Right, and, and you know what kind of upsets me separately, kind of as a, as a person who lives here, is that like Hemings, Hemingway's house is preserved in the Keys and uh, Merrick's house is preserved right in the middle of Coral Gables. And here's this woman, right? Because like uh, this can't be lost on it that like we, we put so much time and effort into these folks who we decide are important, right? And here's a person who first connected 
the Everglades to our, our health as, as a city, as, as an area. And there's this decades-long fight over just preserving your little house. Like if dozens of school buses are come are going to come through every day into this neighborhood. Right. And, which is, by the way, in that neighborhood is the original Hayden mango tree. Oh, that's right. <laughs> it just planted in some guy's yard. And I want to say it's like two blocks over. So it's like a really historic, interesting area. And uh, I feel like a little bit of that is, is being lost to just development. And isn't that the story of South Florida? Anyway, Jenny, it has been uh, a wonderful time to be able to talk with you, hear your stories. We've heard from Jenny Stiletovich, who is the environmental writer at WLRN, and we thank her so much for her time. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be here. And that's Sundial for Wednesday, January 4th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Hear that theme music? That's the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we're joined by filmmaker Nancy Spielberg, She's not the only filmmaker in her family. Uh, Steven Spielberg is her older brother. She's out with a new documentary titled Closed Circuit, centered around the 2016 terrorist attack at an open market in Tel Aviv. It's premiering here at the Miami Jewish Film Festival later this month. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.